You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. There's a cute viral photo that pops up from time to time of a crested macaque nicknamed Naruto, smiling adorably directly into the camera. It almost looks like a monkey's school picture. The monkey used photographer David Slater's camera and took a bunch of photos. But if a monkey takes a picture, who does the picture belong to? To the photographer who owns the camera, the website that hosted the image, or the monkey itself? That depends on who you ask. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. David Slater argued that he had a valid copyright claim based on the fact that he had engineered the entire scenario, traveling to Indonesia, befriending a group of macaques, and setting up his camera equipment in such a way that the selfie picture might come out. The Wikimedia Foundation, which had been hosting the photo in their image library despite Slater's objections, maintained that the picture was public domain, because the monkey would be the copyright holder, but non-humans can't hold copyright, To wit, no one owned it. According to Slater, the picture being publicly available had cost him £10,000 or more in income. In December 2014, the United States Copyright Office stated that works created by a non-human, such as a photograph taken by a monkey, are not copyrightable. Trying to recoup some lost income, Slater published a book of wildlife photography, including the monkey selfie, through the self-publishing company Blurb, Inc. And that's where it all should have ended. Then, people for the ethical treatment of animals decided to get involved. PETA filed a lawsuit against Slater and Blurb, requesting that the monkey be declared the copyright owner and that they be appointed to administer any proceeds from the photo for the endangered species' behalf. The United States District Court of the Northern District of California granted Slater's motion to dismiss that case. PETA appealed. The Court of Appeals held that the monkey lacked statutory standing to claim copyright infringement. The court was not amused by PETA's legal antics, saying, quote, While representing to the world that animals are not ours to use, PETA seems to employ Naruto as an unwitting pawn in its ideological goals. PETA was then ordered to pay Slater's attorney's fees. Trademark and copyright law can get pretty sticky, starting with the distinction between trademark, copyright, and patent. For the layperson, they sound interchangeable. According to the United States Patent and Trademark Office, a trademark is a word, phrase, symbol, and or design that identifies and distinguishes the source of goods from one party from those of another, such as a brand name, slogan, or logo. Do all trademarks have to be registered with the government? No, you can establish common law rights in a mark based on using it in business. 
That being said, federal registration of a trademark has several advantages, including a notice to the public of the registrant's claim of ownership, a legal presumption of ownership, and the exclusive right to use the mark on or in connection with the goods or services. A patent is a limited-duration property right relating to an invention, which could be a machine, a manufactured article, industrial process, or chemical composition. The duration of a patent varies depending on the type, typically 15 to 20 years, though extensions may be granted in certain circumstances. A copyright protects original works of authorship, including literary, dramatic, musical, and artistic works, like poetry, novels, movies, songs, computer software, and architecture. The duration of copyright protection depends on several factors. For works created by an individual, protection lasts for the life of the author plus 70 years. For works created anonymously, pseudo-anonymously, or for hire, protection lasts 95 years from the date of first publication or 120 years from the date of creation, whichever is shorter. Unlike patents and copyrights, trademarks do not expire after a set number of years. Trademark rights come from actual use, so a trademark can last forever as long as you continue to use it. And of course, file specific paperwork and pay fees on time. One thing that all three designations have in common is that they cannot actually stop someone else from using your intellectual property. What they do do is arm you with legal recourse to go after people who do. So you can't copyright a word or phrase to try to stop other people from using it, but you could trademark it. Trademarking phrases is nothing new. The most famous example of this is sports announcer Michael Buffer, who currently makes more money from the way he says the phrase, let's get ready to rumble, than he does from actually announcing the matches. He's reportedly made $400 million from licensing this phrase to movies, commercials, video games, etc. I'd use a clip of it here, but then I'd have to pay him. Not everyone can lay claim to a catchphrase that easily, though. David Hester of A&E's reality show Storage Wars not only has a trademark on the word yuck, but is actually involved in a bitter legal battle with rapper Trey Songs, who claimed that he had been yupping people since at least 2009. According to Hester's court papers, the main difference is that Song's version, quote, resembles an animal-like or non-human squeal which begins with a distinctive yee sound before finishing with a squeal-like up sound, as opposed to Esther's own monosyllabic-sounding guttural auction bidding phrase, end quote. Those words actually appear in legal documents. Not one to let single-syllable fame get away, Olympic pariah Ryan Lochte filed paperwork to trademark JA, a word he screams during events. A certain real estate developer turned TV personality wanted to trademark the phrase, you're fired, with or without annoying hand gesture, we're not sure. As the show gained popularity, the you're fired catchphrase began to appear on t-shirts, coffee mugs, and other tchotchkes. They had anticipated this might happen, and within two weeks of the first episode airing, fired trademark applications for the use of You're Fired with respect to a diverse range of goods, including clothing, casinos, home furnishings, toys, and alcoholic beverages. If the application had been approved, would people be able to sack employees without having to pay license rights? 
The application was denied for a few reasons, the least of which was that it was an established and commonly used phrase. The popularity of the applicant doesn't enter into the decision. Further, two entities already had similar trademarks, one being a paint-your-own pottery business called Your Fired LLC, and an evangelical ministry using the phrase, As my apprentice, you are never fired. A similar thing happened when carmaker Volvo unsuccessfully tried to trademark Drive Safely. The USPTO reasoned that the slogan was just a good suggestion that we should all follow, and not intrinsically linked to any one kind of car. Unlike something like BMW's slogan, Ultimate Driving Machine. Equally common a turn of phrase is Let's Play, which Sony Entertainment tried to lay claim to in 2016. But that isn't why their application was denied. Neither was it denied, as many people think, because of the prevalence of Let's Play, Playthrough Video Games on YouTube. The USPTO declared that it was too similar to an existing trademark, that of Let's Play, the Z of America, a company based in Georgia that organizes events for gamers. Another phrase that sounds too common to trademark is one more thing, but that didn't deter the Swatch Watch Company from applying for it, or Apple from attempting to block them. According to Apple, the phrase one more thing is closely associated with the software giant's founder Steve Jobs. During Apple's press events, Jobs was known to precede new product announcements with the phrase, there is one more thing in his keynote address. However, Apple failed to produce evidence to prove that the phrase was substantially connected to their brand. Apple and Swatch would also find themselves in court when Swatch blocked Apple from registering iWatch as they already had an iSwatch product. The court would rule for Apple in that case, but it was essentially moot since Apple had already rebranded their product as Apple Watch. Speaking of Apple, if you're listening to this podcast on an Apple device and you want to help other users find it, it would be invaluable to me if you left a review on iTunes. We've had one review already, for which I am very grateful. Anyway, if the phrase one more thing belongs to anyone, it belongs to Columbo. For the listener younger than myself, Columbo was a TV detective who would question suspects and it would sound like they were fooling him. Then as he was about to leave, he'd say, just one more thing, and then ask a question that made it clear that he was on to them. Columbo was also the subject of a kind of intentional mistake known as a copyright trap. You can't copyright facts, so how could you tell if someone was plagiarizing something fact-based that you had made? Include a fake fact, like Columbo's first name being Philip. If what you wrote shows up in another work, you'll know that you've been plagiarized. Author Fred Worth began publishing a series of trivia encyclopedias in the 1970s in which he included that single entirely false fact. In 1984, Trivial Pursuit hit the market and sold like hotcakes. There on one of the cards was Worth's fake fact. Columbo's name was never revealed in the show. Unfortunately, even though the makers of Trivial Pursuit admitted to using Worth's books as research, he was unsuccessful in suing them because the game was substantially different from the book. I could do a whole episode on copyright traps and things like the original G.I. Joe's thumbnail being on the wrong side of his thumb. And eventually I will. 
Imagine if Hugh Hefner had tried to forbid anyone else from using the word Playboy because it was the name of his magazine, or Time, or Life, or People doing the same. That's precisely what Tim Langdell of UK studio Edge Games tried to do. His company didn't issue a single game from 1994 to 2009. Their attention was focused instead on suing any other company they could find using the word Edge. Langdell claimed he owned the rights to the word Edge in anything pertaining to the video game industry. The games didn't have to be similar to anything Langdell's team had put out, nor is it likely that they would be, since Edge Games' biggest hit was a Snoopy and Peanuts game for DOS PC. If you're not sure what that means, trust me that it means it was a long time ago. Despite the absurdity of it all, Langdell wasn't tilting at windmills. He managed to make some other developers knuckle under, speculatively just to make him go away, such as the game that launched the Soul Calibur series being changed from Soul Edge to Soul Blade. Moby Games' award-winning Edge, all caps, was removed from the US and UK Apple Store because of that trademark claim. It's a wonder he didn't go after U2's guitarist The Edge while he was at it. Needless to say, Langdell was not well-liked among developers and gamers. But his tenure of trademark temper tantrums came to an end when he took on the very big fish of electronic arts. Not only did EA defend their title Mirror's Edge, they filed a consolidated petition for cancellation that covered a number of Langdell-owned trademarks. The court ruled in their favor in 2009, ending Langdell's ownership of the phrases Cutting Edge, Gamer's Edge, The Edge, and the standalone word Edge as video game trademarks. Couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. EA also has a clever way of dealing with people who pirate the game Mirror's Edge. The game mechanics are based largely on parkour, that crazy, dangerous, running, jumping thing. If your copy of the game didn't come from a reputable source, your character would slow to a veritable crawl when you reached a jump, dooming you to fall to your death every time. A lot happens every day. Cut through some of the noise by listening to What's New with Wired, a podcast that provides in-depth coverage on technology and culture. With new episodes released every weekday, you can catch up on all the major events you missed. From AI developments to business updates to new scientific theories, it helps you make sense of what's happening in the world. Plus, each episode is usually pretty short. You can easily squeeze it in on your way to work or during a lunch break. So stay updated with the award-winning journalism from Wired. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside 
The Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. After The Banner Saga, a Norse mythology-based tactical fantasy role-playing game was released for PC and mobile in 2014, they found their trademark application formally objected to by another developer. Was it the makers of World of Warcraft or some other fantasy RPG? No, it was by King Games, creators of Candy Crush. King Games had an understandable practice of protesting shape-matching games with similar titles, to prevent consumers from being confused and buying knockoffs by mistake. Now, King doesn't own Candy or Saga in the sense that they applied for and were granted trademark, since they're both common words that don't smack of a particular brand. But after being in business with that name for the required five years, they were issued a registered trademark for it, the little circle R that you see after titles. Could Banner Saga creator Stoic Studios sue King Games in response? Probably not. That's one of the overarching problems with the legal process, says business lawyer Greg Collins. Those that are able to bring litigation and assert claims, valid or not, are in a better position when they're well-financed than those who aren't. King made about a billion with a B dollars a year from downloads and in-game purchases. Stoic did not. Ultimately, though, King Games withdrew its objection to Stoic's trademark application and both games are doing pretty well for themselves. This reporter's chief objection to King's claim to the word saga is that saga is a long heroic story by definition, which their bejeweled knockoff patently doesn't have. Is there a story in there that I missed, subtly woven into the colored shapes? Is it worthy of songs and epic poems? Pop on over to facebook.com slash yourbrainonfacts or leave a comment on the platform you're listening to and let me know. I don't mind being wrong. Being wrong is just a chance to learn. Candy Crush found itself on the receiving end of a lawsuit last year after enticing players with free lives in the game if they'll promote it to their friends on Facebook, specifically in the form of asking friends to download the game and donate lives to you. Smarmy and annoying on its face, the problem arose when King then deleted those free extra lives from players' accounts without notice. The class action suit claims that 25 million players received and then lost lives valued at about 20 cents each. King moved to dismiss the complaint, stating that there was no injury in fact because the principal plaintiff played Candy Crush for free, received the additional donated lives for free, and never purchased anything from King. The court was unimpressed by this argument. It noted that an injury need not be economic in nature to give the plaintiff standing, and the fact that the plaintiff had difficulty proving damages does not mean there are none. The court's refusal to dismiss was the most recent news I could find on the case. If anything else turns up, I'll note it in a future episode or a social media post. A word can be out for a while and still be trademarked. Jane's addiction frontman Perry Farrell has a trademark on the word Lollapalooza, despite the fact that it had existed for more than a century before his alternative rock festival of the same name started in the 1990s. Farrell, however, is pretty cool with letting others use the word, as long as they're not directly trying to rip him off. The reason? It would simply cost too much money for lawyers to sue everyone who put palooza at the end of a word. For example, there's Pasture Palooza Music and Arts Festival, Forkapalooza Food Festival, 
Pinchapalooza Jazz Festival, even Petalpalooza to celebrate the cherry blossoms in the spring. Bonus fact, the 25th anniversary Lollapalooza in 2016 drew an estimated 400,000 attendees, about the same as the disastrous Woodstock 99, but with fewer fires and less looting. Have you ever noticed that all the ads in late January and early February talk about the big game? Whether it's groceries, pizza delivery, or new cars, everyone wants you to buy their product in honor of the big game. We all know what game they're referring to, so why don't they just come out and say it? Because the NFL holds a trademark on the phrase Super Bowl, and each year their eight-person Department of Trademark and Copyright Specialists monitors everything from local radio to telephone pole advertisements, looking for mentions of off-limit words or images. This proactive strategy also includes sending out thousands of reminder letters each year to global advertising giants and companies in the communities where the game is played, setting out what can and can't be used in promotional materials. Sometimes a reminder isn't enough. Each season, the NFL mails out over 100 official cease and desist letters, demanding that trademarks like Super Bowl not be used in any commercial context. We take these issues very seriously and aren't afraid to pursue infringement vigorously, says Anastasia Danius, the NFL's VP of Intellectual Property. According to others who have dealt with the NFL over its trademark policy, the league's lawyers rarely back down from a fight. With hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue coming to the NFL from officially licensed sponsorships, those $9 million per minute commercials, and the billions of dollars from networks to broadcast the game, it isn't hard to figure out why they would want to stem the devaluation of the event that comes from people slapping the word Super Bowl on everything. Even if a radio station somehow had tickets to the game to give away, they couldn't refer to them as Super Bowl tickets unless they were an official sponsor. Even phrases like Super Sunday are verboten, despite the fact that half of the phrase is a day of the week. You can forget about mentioning the teams as well, though you are allowed to refer to them by the city that they come from. The NFL doesn't own the cities. Yet. It's the same sort of scenario with the Olympics. Commercial entities may not post about the trials or games on their corporate social media accounts, reads the letter written by the United States Olympic Committee Chief Marketing Officer Lisa Baird. This restriction includes the use of USOC trademarks in hashtags such as hashtag Rio2016 or hashtag TeamUSA. Hey, do you remember the other name for hashtags from the episode two weeks ago? It was Octothorpe. The USOC owns the trademarks Olympic, Olympian, Go for the Gold, Let the Games Begin, Paralympic, and any variation thereof, Pyeongchang 2018, Tokyo 2020, Road to Rio, Team USA, and many more. The letter further stipulates that a company whose primary mission is not media-related cannot reference any Olympic results, cannot share or repost anything from the official Olympic account, and cannot use any pictures taken at the Olympics. You'll get the same treatment from the Motion Picture Academy of Arts and Science and their darling little Oscar statues. You can't use things like Oscar, Oscar Night, or Academy Awards, though you can say Awards of Merit, which is the actual name of the statue. Be very careful if you try to use an image of a little gold man standing very straight as well. 
the Academy takes control of their brand one step further. When you accept an Oscar, you agree that you cannot sell it without first giving the Academy the chance to buy it back from you. The pre-arranged price for this transaction? $10. Robert De Niro's Best Actor Oscar for Raging Bull wouldn't buy two decent Starbucks coffees. You've probably noticed that I've just made extensive use of phrases like Super Bowl, Olympics, and Oscars. Am I worried about being sued? Well, I wasn't until you asked. Just kidding, I'm covered by the principle of fair use, which provides certain exceptions to copyright. The following is a brief but by no means complete list of excuses that will not get you out of a fix if you've borrowed someone else's work. It doesn't have a copyright notice on it, so I don't need permission. That was true before March 1st of 1989, when you had to put a notice on your property to claim it, but it's not true now. Well, if I give them credit, I don't need their permission. Nope. The axiom of it's better to beg forgiveness than ask permission doesn't hold up in court. Copyright infringement is using something without permission. Attribution doesn't change that. Well, I don't need permission because I'm going to adapt to the original work. Taking something you didn't make and changing it doesn't make the situation better. If anything, it makes it worse. Now, full disclosure, that last statement was tainted by personal opinion. You may not know this about me, but I've produced burlesque shows for the last six years, and I made most of the posters myself. Few things are more infuriating than seeing someone take your art and adapt it to their needs, or worse, modify it in some way to try to obscure its source that invariably makes it much, much worse. Copyright law grants copyright owners the exclusive right to control modifications of their work. Next time you search Google Images, look under Tools and you'll see several settings for searching usage rights with and without modification. Those distinctions matter. Well, the material I want to reproduce was posted anonymously, and that means it's public domain. Let me put it to you this way. If you find a wallet on the ground with no ID in it, that doesn't mean it doesn't belong to someone. While I'm planning to use it for my nonprofit, the user doesn't matter. The nature of the material, how it's being used, and whether the new use adversely affects the value of the original work does. Neither does it matter if you're a super small entity or you don't expect to make any money from the project. Well, since I'm only using a small portion of it, I don't need permission. A lot of people believe that there's a magic number of how many seconds of a song they can use. Some people think it's three, others think it's 15. While fair use can't be defined with mathematical precision, courts have consistently held that you cannot escape liability by showing how much of the work you didn't take. Most fair use analysis falls into two categories, commentary and criticism, or parody. Writing this podcast using all of those trademarked words falls under commentary and criticism. I hope. Some examples of commentary and criticism fair use include quoting a few lines from a song in a music review, summarizing and quoting from a medical journal article for a news report, copying a portion of a news article for use by a student or teacher, or copying a portion of a magazine article for use in a relevant court case. The underlying rationale of this rule is that it's the public that reaps the benefit from your use of someone else's work, not you. Speaking of benefiting from someone else's work, 
All of the music on my podcast comes either from the YouTube Free Music Library or from composer extraordinaire Kevin McLeod at incompotech.com. Check out the song Mystery Sex. I'm using it as my ringtone. Between this podcast and having had to find royalty-free music for a burlesque documentary I edited, I get to have this special experience when listening to podcasts or watching YouTube and recognizing the music that the other creators are using. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. We've only dipped our toes into copyright and trademark cases. There are lots of other interesting instances out there, like the creator of Bikram Yoga trying to trademark his series of poses, or Gene Simmons of Kiss applying to trademark the iconic rock hand gesture known as the horns. And we didn't even get into patents yet. But check back in with me every Tuesday morning, because we will eventually. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. Today's episode was brought to you by the word titular. Titular. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science. Everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.